America remembers her as Baby Jessica. Do you remember Baby Jessica? 31 years ago, 31 years ago, when she was 18 months old in Midland, Texas, Jessica McClure fell 20 feet into an abandoned well pipe. It was 8 inches wide when she fell in, and it expanded to just 14 inches, 20 feet down. It took 58 hours and 400 people to rescue her. They drilled a parallel shaft three feet wide and 30 feet through rock harder than granite. And then when they were actually deeper than Jessica, they drilled horizontally to where she was um, to rescue her. And while all of this was going on, they dropped a microphone down in order to communicate with her. As long as she was singing and crying, uh, she was alive. And they wanted to make sure she knew she wasn't alone. And so they were with her as she was groaning. They were with her as she was uh, just kind of mumbling. They were with her as she sang Winnie the Pooh to keep her going through this rescue. People tend to do and think strange things when they're trapped alone in a dark and scary place for long periods of time. Their, their fears begin to take over, understandably. And sometimes they just give up. But the rescuer stayed in touch with her and brought her out safely. Well, Jessica is 32 years old now. She has mercifully no recollection of this rescue. Um, she's married, she has two children, and she's a special education teacher in the Midland, Texas area. But her rescue brought her community together, and for that matter, it brought the country together, uh, because in 1987, there was just crisis after crisis going on in our country, and we needed some good news. And Jessica's rescue was certainly good news. I had a conversation with uh, someone in the fireside room after first service who told me that when she was studying in uh, London, uh, she heard about this harrowing story. So it garnered the attention of the world. The sharing and the bearing of this burden, the sharing and the bearing brought about a community and a level of fellowship that's otherworldly. And that's what I want us to consider this morning as we continue our series called The Fellowship of the King. We've been studying Christian community and what that looks like. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 25 and 26, and then Galatians 6, 1 through 5. And you'll find that on page 975 of your church Bibles. So we've been discovering that God's answer to the loneliness epidemic in our culture is community. But here's what we've learned. We've learned that you will not find community by making it the goal. It's kind of like happiness. You won't find happiness by making happiness the goal. Happiness and community, these are byproducts. Byproducts of serving one another, reading and discussing scripture, praying together, forgiving together, exercising patience with one another, 
And, and here, in these verses, community is an outcome of sharing and bearing. Sharing and bearing. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26 through 6, 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. So sharing and bearing as a path to true community in Christ. These verses teach us that the primary evidence of a spirit-infused congregation, the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a church family is not some mystical, individualized experience. Rather, it's the practical, visible display of love between brothers and sisters in Christ. A display of love that shows up through sharing and bearing. The Spirit's love displays itself when there is sharing and bearing of brokenness within the family of God. And so here's the big idea. Here's what we learn. Christ-exalting community comes through the sharing and bearing of our brokenness. Christ-exalting community comes through the sharing and bearing of our brokenness. So let's talk about sharing and bearing. First, the sharing. Sharing's implied here in these verses. Because you really can't bear someone's burdens if you don't know what they are. Each week, your staff and elders and prayer team remember your prayer requests that you share with us. And we notice that, you know, like baby Jessica, some of us feel trapped in a dark, cramped well. And we're stuck in a situation from which we can't extract ourselves from. But unlike Jessica, you know, we can walk and talk and go to work and drive to church and we kind of fake it. While really on the inside, we feel like we're in a dark well. And here's the temptation. The temptation is, what I'll just keep projecting an image of I've got it together and not deal with the brokenness inside. And yet it's at this very moment when we need another human being to come alongside of us. We can only grow so far by ourselves. Continued growth and healing require assistance from another brother or sister in Christ. And that's where the sharing comes in. And specifically, in Galatians chapter 6, the struggle is a sin struggle. Thus the word transgression. 
in verse 1. And when I read that verse, my mind immediately goes to James chapter 5, verse 16, where James says to believers, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I can't totally explain it. And I haven't quite totally figured it out even now. But I've read of it and I've witnessed it and I've experienced it personally. And it's this. If you want to invite the Lord in for healing, you've got to bring somebody else in first. We, we, that is to say, we, we cannot say that we have fully admitted something to God unless we've admitted it to another person. And thus, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, if I were you and I just heard me say that, I would listen politely and think to myself, well, that's never going to happen. I'm just not going to do that. That's a nice concept, pastor, but I'm not going to do that. Well, let's just probe that just a bit. If you happen to have thought that, let's just probe. Well, what would, why? What, what keeps us from confession? And if we probe that, I think there's two reasons. Pride and punishment. Let's talk about pride first. Just old-fashioned pride. We're stubborn. We don't want to admit what's true about us. We're not sinners. We're mistakers. And we gloss over offenses with a generic, well, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like. And so we don't deal with that which is encasing us. I read about a freshman in college whose mother had all, always done his laundry. And when he went off to school, she gave him a duffel bag and she said, um, you know, put your dirty clothes in this every night and then at the end of the week, wash them at the laundromat. So at the end of the week, he took his dirty clothes uh, that were in the duffel, took it all to the laundromat, but he wanted to save some time. So he just decided to throw the whole duffel bag into the washer. And he put some laundry powder and he turned on the machine and moments later there was this thump, 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 all throughout the laundromat that echoed. Well, a fellow student observed this with a grin and she said, I happened to notice you loading your duffel bag into the washer. And she said, I think the clothes would get cleaner if you took them out of the bag. Later on, this young man wrote these words. When my relationship with God was hurting, I remembered the laundromat. And I realized that the way I confessed sins, dear God, forgive me for all the sins I've committed today, was about as effective in cleansing them as the duffel bag approach. And then he said this, each sin 
needs individual attention. Well, that, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? And, and then that leads to the second reason why we maybe wouldn't confess. It's the view that confession is punishment. Somehow we feel that the humility of having to fess up is some sort of penance for sin. But brothers and sisters, that's not it at all. It's not. Confession isn't punishment for sin. It's medicine for the soul. Confession is an offer of healing. Confession is a gift from God. You see, sin loves anonymity. Sin wants to stay unknown. Sin loves to separate us and isolate us. And that makes sin fundamentally antisocial. Because it causes me to love me more than anything else and care for me more than anything else. And it dehumanizes the people in my life. So, so no longer are they people to me. No longer are they the objects of my affection and service. No, what happens with sin is that my loved ones and my friends are reduced either to vehicles to help me get what I want or obstacles in the way of what I want. And the more isolated we are, the more power sin has over us. Jesus himself spoke of this in John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, when he said, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we cannot enjoy the grace of God in the light of truth if we're hiding from God in the darkness of sin. If you go to celebrate recovery here at Windsor Road on Friday nights, it won't be too many Friday nights until you'll hear someone say, secrets have power as long as they're what? Secrets. Secrets have power as long as they're secrets. And, and this is why we can't just go out to Allerton Park and confess our sins uh, to, to nature. You know, they follow us back into the car, back home. And too often people end up saying, well, you know, I, I, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. As if they're saying, what I think about myself is more important than what God thinks about me. Psalm 32, 3 says, when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But when we confess to a brother or sister in Christ in an environment of love, we open ourselves to hear healing words from that brother or sister who reads the word of God to us and says to us on the basis of God's word, on the basis of God's promise, not your feelings. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing like the joy of forgiven sin. In fact, one author says, God laughs over forgiven sin. And think about that for a minute. Haven't your children done just some of the most, well, they've just been children. And then when they're confronted about it, you know, then they're defiant about it. But then the truth cuts to the heart and they break and there's tears and there's repentance and then like the prodigal sons they come home and there's a celebration and there's a party God throws a party but because of the confession you see confession defangs the serpent of secrecy and And through sharing in confession, we find out, we find out that we're not the only one. Most people think that they're unique. And in confession, they discover that they're not. You know, we we think, we think, well, if anybody knew this about me, they would never talk to me again. And this conversation gets replayed in many Celebrate Recovery communities. Someone someone tells their sponsor about the worst thing I've ever done, and the sponsor replies, that's all? I've done that twice. You're not alone. You're not alone. And, And that said, in confession, we may be redirected to make amends with the person we've offended. In other words, It's good that we confessed the wrong to another brother or sister in Christ, but actually we need to apologize to the person we hurt. And that brother and sister in Christ will gently direct us to that. But the point is not for punishment. It's for healing. Confess to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, let me explain a few things. The scripture here isn't saying that we should just rush out into the foyer after services and just belch out the most intimate details of our lives to the very first person we see. Furthermore, I am not inviting all of us to line up outside the fireside room and take a number for me to hear your confession. Neither of us would be helped by that. And and I'm not saying that I'm unwilling to hear anybody's confession. I'm saying that you don't need a seminary degree or an ordination certificate to hear the confession of a broken brother or sister in Christ. You need a spirit-led brother or sister in Christ. That's the point of verse 1. You who are spiritual. Paul's talking about the church family. The Holy Spirit's presence is here. So let's pastor one another and love one another. No brother or sister should hear everyone's confession. And frankly, brothers should hear the confession of brothers. And sisters should hear the confession of sisters. 
And the reason why that is, is that there is an intimacy to confession that the evil one will exploit. Verse 2, watch yourself or you too may be tempted. So the, the point is that the Christ church is a fellowship of truth. And we're not going to be marked by secretiveness or cloaking ourselves to conceal who we really are. We're not going to try to look on the outside what we're really not on the inside. And that means being truthful about our struggles with sin. And my struggles have been prayed over by such brothers in our church, Brother John, and outside our church family, Brother Ken in Ohio, and by Brother Masood in New York, and by our elder leadership team. There, there's not one of our elders um, that any of our flock could not go to and share their brokenness and not receive restoration and grace and mercy and love. And the final breakthrough to community, when, when community really comes alive in a local church, it, it, it's not the snazzy programs. It's not the dark roast coffee. It's when brothers or sisters in Christ share their burdens, their sin struggles with each other. When, when the church comes together as broken people, and when they're taught by a broken pastor, and any Christian who lives in a fellowship of such confession will never, ever be alone. Sharing. Sharing and bearing. Bearing. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore. That word has to do with the mending of a fishnet. And it also has to do with the setting of a broken bone. To set a bone back in place. Now that's going to hurt. But it's a healing kind of hurt. And it means when we see a brother or sister who is caught in any transgression. They're caught. They're, they, they've found themselves stuck in a well. And they're caught up in that. We go alongside them. And Paul says, such a brother or sister, you know, be alert to their situation and quickly do something. Don't let them be crushed. Don't let them be destroyed. Don't be like the scribes and Pharisees about whom Jesus said they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not even move a finger. Don't increase their burdens. Make it lighter for people. Some of you are wondering where you can serve in the church family. Well, here. I don't have a brochure for you. I don't have a program. But I have this. Here it is. Commit yourself to the spirit-led skill 
of humbly identifying and gently easing the burdens of others. Dedicate yourself to, to detecting brokenness in the flock and then devote yourself to responding to that in love, in love. And that takes us to the danger portion of these verses. Do you notice there's a danger portion? There's a danger to this passage. But who's in danger here in these verses? Whom does Paul spend several verses warning about what might happen to them in this situation of sharing and bearing? Is it the one who's fallen? No. It's the one who's about to help him stand. Like a, like a school speed limit zone. Yellow lights are flashing. Caution, caution, caution. What is it? Why? Again, pride. Pride. A, a, a pride that says, well, I can't believe you would do that. I'm shocked. And, and pride's perversion causes an air of superiority at the, at the struggle of a brother or sister in Christ. Pride can cause us to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. And Paul warns against that. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, you know, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not his neighbor. In other words, don't look at others as your standard of measurement. Don't get puffed up because a brother or a sister falls lower than you. Pride loves to see people fall when we have stood. And Paul says, you stop feeding your pride by comparing yourselves with those who sin. Don't measure your moral achievements by those of others. Measure them, test them by the perfect law of Christ, the law of love. When you see the law of Christ, you say, love, love. Then whatever there is in you to boast about is not going to be owing to someone else's inferiority. Jesus is our standard. And Paul says, since you yourself struggle with pride, make every effort to humble yourselves whenever you restore someone else in their struggle with sin. Now let me be very specific. Let me wordcraft some phrases that might help you come alongside of a brother or sister who is struggling and, and, and bear their burden. Here it is. Uh, you've been on my heart. I've really appreciated your willingness to say that you struggle with. But I've been concerned that people might leave you alone. Can we talk about this? Something you said the other day has really stuck with me, and it was when I heard you say, I'm curious about that. Can we talk? Now, I know you've been really busy with work more than usual, and it got me thinking about how my own struggle with temptations can be more severe when there are fewer people around who know me. Can we talk? Can we talk? If, if you could just remember, you know, would it, would it be okay if we talked? See? If you can remember that, phrase I think that'll go a long way in terms of helping restore those who struggle I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you're my brother I'm your keeper 
And that attitude needs to exist with, with everyone here. That we are truly brothers and sisters. And this is why Christianity uh, grew 40% a decade for the first 300 years after Pentecost. It's brothers and sisters in Christ who loved one another and cared for one another and shared and bared. Is the Spirit's love here such that if we see a breakdown in someone's life, we're willing to address it one-on-one? -on -one? Or are we the kind of community that looks the other way when someone in the church family, when their heart is being hardened by sin? Do, do we take breakdowns seriously? What I'm praying for here is what one author calls redemptive vulnerability. Redemptive vulnerability. Vulnerability. It's, it's admitting that we are not perfect, we've not arrived, we're broken, and we live in a world that's broken. We experience depression and burnout and cancer and sadness and death and grief and disability and disease and relational strife and loneliness and lust and anxiety and the list goes on. But the story doesn't have to end with brokenness. Redemptive vulnerability is where we share our brokenness and then brothers and sisters in Christ bear that with us in order to display the, the splendid grace of the crucified and resurrected Christ. So, so vulnerability is not an end in itself. Christ is an end. It's not, I'm vulnerable, look at me. Rather, it's safe to be vulnerable in the grace of Christ. Redemptive vulnerability looks at and hopes in the, the redemption of the resurrected Christ and his work on the cross. And that creates safety for a community. Safe for the broken. A brokenness that will not be used against you. And it will also create a community that can discern the difference between burdens and loads. Did you get that? Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. But then verse 5 says, for each will have to bear his own load. Well, which is it, pastor? Yes! You see the word burden? The word burden is a different word than the word load. The word burden is like a boulder that you, that you can't carry by yourself. But the word load is, is the word for backpack. And Christ carried your burden. And that burden was put to death at the cross. Christ was raised by the power of his Father. He ascended and is seated in the heavenly realm and has sent his Holy Spirit with all of the gifts and abilities so that God's people might love one another, serve one another, share with one another, bear with one another. Now that's a, that's, that's a load that you can carry. And you must burdens and backpacks boulders 
we help. You've got a backpack. You can do that. That's yours. But what if our congregation, what if the small groups in our church, what if our relationships here included components of, of crying out in confession and responding in restoration, that that much light, the light of truth, the light of grace, the light of help, would, would, would not only cause the darkness of sin to evacuate, but that light would be such a visible source uh, that the community would, that we live in would say, who are these people? Who are these? These are, these are the people of God. That's who they are. And they share and they bear in the name of love, pockets of two and three, praying in circles, tears of confession, comfort, reassurance, redemptive vulnerability to the glory of Christ. So I heard about a worship service where people had the opportunity to you know, write their sin struggles on a piece of paper and then fold the paper and then pin it to a wooden cross. We've done that before. But in this particular church, a family came and worshiped together and they walked through the worship experience as an entire family. And when it came time for the confession station, they explained to their six-year-old son the practice of confessing their sin and writing it on the paper. And so they all grabbed a sheet of paper and started writing their confessions. Well, he did the same, but he's six years old. So he started writing with large, clear, block letters. And the rest of the family wrote their confessions and carefully folded the sheets so that no one could see the sins that they had written down. And they intentionally left their names off the paper as well. And, and then they walked to the cross and they pinned their sins to the cross. Well, this six-year-old wrote large block letters, God, I'm sorry because I lie. And then he signed his name. And he refused to fold it. And he walked to the front and he pinned it to the cross with the writing so that everyone could see. And his parents were curious. And they said, son, why did you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so that no one can see? This is what the six-year-old said. He said, no, I, I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see it. Because if they know it was me, then maybe they can help. Get it? 